the very intent of your design in us is that we should spend our existence giving praise to you. We are a people who applaud a lot of things. And yet, oh God, rarely are the people of God swept up in such a way that our praises are aimed towards heaven and nothing else. And we pray, oh God, that in this brief hour, only an hour, might we as your people give the kind of praise that is appropriate, that is fitting, that is worthy, the God who is thrice holy, the God who made us and then went on to redeem us in Christ Jesus, the God whose fullness of grace has found sinners such as I, a God who has prepared a place that we will enjoy felicity and bliss forever. And I pray, O oh God, that our hearts this morning might overflow with the kind of praise that you deserve. Oh God, I do indeed thank you for all of the kind providences in our, in our church family. We continue to ask you for mercy, O oh God. There are mercy drops round us falling, but it's showers, O oh God, showers of mercy that we need. We are a, a stiff-necked people. And what we long to be is that, that submissive, surrendered people. So, Lord God, we celebrate today your long-suffering for sinners as wayward as we. But, Father, as wayward as we are, we are still yours. Bought and paid for and now owned by our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we ask, O oh God, that what goes on here today will bring you pleasure. We ask it all, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God's word, and let's uh, resume our, our treatment of the most uh, famous story ever told. It uh, is the second in a series of probably 14, uh, entitled A Theology of Embrace. It, of course, is the story or concerns the story of the prodigal son. If you'll follow as I read, beginning at verse 11, Luke 15. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed a fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. If you weren't with us last week, you um, didn't miss a whole lot, but one thing that you do need to remember as we uh, go forward or go, or go further in this, uh, this study of the prodigal son is that uh, the parable of the prodigal son is a third of a trilogy of parables, all evoked because of a piece of criticism levied at Jesus by the Pharisees. It's recorded for you in verses 1 and 2. Basically, the Pharisees didn't like the way Jesus dealt with sinners. They, their accusation is basically, uh, he's soft on sin. And as a result of that accusation, Jesus responds with three parables. We're only concentrating on the third of those three, but it is a part of a three-part trilogy, all designed to answer this criticism that Jesus received sinners and eats with them. The prodigal son has now concluded the sale of all of his newly inherited merchandise. You know, it's got to be turned into cash, and so he's turned everything into cash, and he's ready to get out of town as quickly as possible. Now, at last, he's going to be free and independent, a dream that he had long had is about to come true. You know, ladies and gentlemen, you don't become this disillusioned overnight. Um, the prodigal son, I would suggest, had mulled this over in his mind for months, perhaps even years. It, was, it took him years to come to the place that he could have enough courage to walk up into the face of his father and in essence say, you need to go ahead and die. Because I want my stuff. This boy, uh, perhaps, at one time was a loyal son, loved his father. But on some occasion that we know not of, somebody had 
whispered into his ear, something, some kind of evil secret into his ear, and a picture of sin had formed in his mind, and all that was needed now is an opportunity. The opportunity to give vent to that which had been mulled over for months. This is a boy that had been told the, the seductive stories about the, the delights of city life. You know, it doesn't take much, ladies and gentlemen. A, um, a wicked movie, that's enough. A, a, uh, a wrong friendship, a bad book, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to plant that evil in the deepest recesses of our minds where no, no knife will ever cut it out. During those um, quiet nights, as he laid in his father's house and full on food that his father had provided for him, this young man had succumbed to the voices that were so full of promise, so seductive. Voices that said, you need to go out and prove yourself. A voice that says, you know, you need to get yourself connected. Be a somebody. Come on. You need to do your own thing. Those are the voices that told him that if he was ever going to have any value, it was going to be value that came from, from being successful, popular, or, or powerful. Those voices kept pushing him to do everything, to, to, to earn his own way, to stand on his own two feet, to make his own mark. All those, ladies and gentlemen, all of those are the voices of the faraway country. And now, finally, <laughs> a dream come true. He's, he, he's really there, pulled there by the, by the siren voices of, of independence, control, self-worth. All which suggests that if I'm ever going to be loved, I'll have to go out there and earn it myself. You know, gang, um, it's not by his feet that he left his father's house. He didn't need feet. He didn't need a car or a boat. The God-abandoned heart, that's the faraway country. Misplaced, misplaced affections. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, he had, this boy, this boy had left long before he left. You know, I'm, I'm uh, interested in verse 13. It reminds me of, you know, there's so much praise given to the Gettysburg Address because there's no word in the Gettysburg Address that is wasted, no excess verbiage, we're told. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you want to see a whole lot said in just a few words, in an economy of words. You'll find it in verse 13. Not many days later or after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a faraway country, and there wasted his possession for a living. This verse tells us not only that he left, but also after he left, he squandered everything he had. 
and he squandered it through prodigal living. All his wealth is gone now. You know, it doesn't take long to spend the, the 40% of the estate that he had coming to them. You know, while I was um, preparing to do this series, I, I ran across something that I thought was so intriguing. It's mentioned in the, in the Talmud. It's a, it describes a method by which Judaism punished any Jewish boy who lost his inheritance to Gentiles. It's, it's called the Katsatsa ceremony. Um, it's also mentioned, by the way, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But this Katsatsa ceremony was, was performed if somebody, if some young Jewish boy went and lost all of his inheritance in the land of Gentiles, and he, and he had the nerve to come back home, what, was, what, what awaited him was this Katsatsa ceremony. It's pretty simple. It was, uh, the villagers would gather, and they brought this large earthen jar or pot, and inside it was filled with burnt corn and burnt wheat. You know, in a culture, ladies and gentlemen, that is as agrarian as this one, food is very, very important. And to burn it, to burn it symbolized an utter and complete waste. And so they'd bring this jar and they'd sit it in the, in the middle of the village and everybody would gather around and they would, they would break the jar. And while they did, they, they began to shout, almost chant. They would say the name and so-and-so, so-and-so is cut off from his people. So-and-so is cut off from his people. And from that point on, ladies and gentlemen, the village had nothing whatsoever to do with him. The Amish have a, have a version of that. They call it the shun. And if someone has done something in the Amish community that is not approved of by the broader community... They, they perform what they call a shun. But in the, in the Amish shun, you can at least have a meal. Yeah, i got to sit at another table. But you can at least have a meal. But not if you were the object of the katsatsa. It was, it was a complete and total and utter ban once anyone had violated this, this village code of honor. This boy must have had in the back of his mind when he left. <laughs> oh no, I sure don't want to have the katsatsa, but you know, it's not going to stop me. And he goes, and fearing that he would lose his money is the very thing he did. He lived with the Gentiles. You know, they had pigs. And on his return, what awaited him was the katsatsa. You know, listen, the reason that I, I, I draw this to your attention is really not to, I, it's not to say anything but this. This is what I, what, what struck me is this. It, it gives you some idea, I think, about how strong are, the, are those siren voices that lure us away from the Father's house. All of our lives, most of our childhood and teenage years and college years are spent forming conclusions as to how we can be a somebody. And, we, and we've all got various strategies as to how to pull that off. But we draw these conclusions about how it is that we're going to make our mark. And ladies and gentlemen, nothing, nothing will stop us those siren voices that woo us 
and allure us and seduce us and promise us. We'll take whatever risks. We'll go to whatever extremes. But we're going to be a somebody. And I don't care what I've got to do to do it. The text doesn't tell us uh, how the boy spent all that money. It doesn't really matter, does it? The, um, the elder brother accused him of harlots. But he can't be sure, uh, you know... Uh, the elder brother had just come in from the field. He didn't know anything firsthand. But it certainly would be to his advantage to uh, exaggerate, perhaps, what, uh, what his younger brother had done. But um, maybe it was harlots. But that isn't the issue either, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, it was for the Pharisees. But the issue... The issue is that this young man was seeking to find in a faraway country what could be given to him only by his father. But he didn't believe that. And neither do some of you. He believed the evil secrets. And so do some of you. The text only says that he squandered his inheritance with prodigal living, wild living. You know, the, the Greek word is an interesting one. That, um, the, 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 the rendering that I like better, and, and I think it's more descriptive of at least folks like us, it's, uh, it's a word that could be rendered out of control. <laughs> you know, it, it's, not, it's not hard for me to know when I'm living out of control. I know when I'm doing it. When I lose my temper or um, and I'm engaged in some kind of envy or jealousy or a desire for revenge or lust, greed. Those are, oh, those are way too obvious of indicators that I'm living far away from the Father. But ladies and gentlemen, there's a point that you need to understand, and I mentioned it last week. Living far away from the Father doesn't simply mean that I'm breaking a bunch of overt rules. That's how the Pharisees understood things. If you did that, then you must be that. But living far away from the Father, ladies and gentlemen, can be done in whole lots of ways. Not just those obvious things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm doing something like that, I can obviously, and I know full well that I'm living far from the Father's house. But there are other ways. Lots of other ways. You see, ladies and gentlemen, sin. Sin is trying to find myself. 
in some way other than in a relationship with the Father. Sin is trying to find myself in some way other than in a relationship with my Heavenly Father. One of, the, uh, one of my preacher friends that I consulted on this uh, text, he made this observation, and I, I thought it was so profound. He said, when you try to gain control of your life by running from God, you end up giving control of your life to something else. Isn't that true? When you try to gain control of your life by running from God, you end up giving control of your life to something else. You know, ladies and gentlemen, this probably isn't fair because if you've got young children, I'm about to scare the socks off of you. But unfortunately, I've got college kids. Actually, I only have one of those. Do you know how much alcohol is being consumed? by the college generation. Do you have any idea? Do you know? And, and I look at them and I say, a bunch of kids so desperate to be somebody, seeking to find some way to get control of their lives. they end up giving themselves to the control of something else. Oh, but we adults are far more refined and sophisticated than that. Ladies and gentlemen, according to this parable, sin is seeking a home where there is no home. What's a home? A home, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, is not a place. It's a relationship. A relationship where I belong and I am accepted. The prodigal son left home to find home, and he ended up with a life that was out of control. You see, for the Pharisees, they thought... And, and you can see this in their literature. You can see it in the Old Testament. They, 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 would, they would repeat this. The temple of God, the temple of God, the temple of God. The te they repeated it ad nauseum. And for the Pharisees, they thought as long as they were close to the temple, that's why they never wanted to leave the promised land. You remember Jonah? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Well, he didn't want to get away from the temple. You know what that is. You get away from the temple, and that means you're far from God. As long as I'm close to that temple, everything's fine because I'm close to God. And ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus describes them in Matthew 15 as, yeah, 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 you do this, 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 and this, but your hearts are far from me. He is not speaking spatially. Far does not describe distance. It describes likeness. Two creatures can be really, really close, physically, but because of their similarity, they're millions of miles apart. You know, just to take this to the absurd, an angel and a gorilla 
might be located in the same room, conceivably. But because of the vast difference between their two natures, the possibility of friendship and fellowship is impossible. The Bible has a word, ladies and gentlemen, for the unlikeness between God and man. The word is alienation. And the point that I would want you to understand this morning, ladies and gentlemen, is that alienation is not always so overt. Alienation cannot always be so easily quantified and objectified. Yeah, yeah, I know if I've lost my timber and screamed at my wife. Yeah, yeah. But it's not always that overt. I find myself, ladies and gentlemen, and, and falling back into a trap again and again before I'm ever fully aware of it. I find myself wondering why somebody hurt me, why they rejected me, why they didn't pay any attention to me. Or without realizing it, I find myself brooding over somebody else's success, my own loneliness. And sometimes in, in spite of my conscious intentions to do otherwise, I find myself daydreaming about becoming rich and powerful and famous. All of those, ladies and gentlemen, are siren voices. Voices that reveal to me how unlike my father I am, and thus, how far I am from his house. I am um, so afraid of being disliked and blamed and passed over and ignored. So much so that I'm constantly developing strategies as to how I might defend myself and, and thereby assure myself of the love that I think I so desperately need and deserve. And every time I do so, I move further and further away from my father's house. And I choose to dwell in a faraway country. And instead of, instead of being in control, I'm out of control. I'm controlled by any number of foolish pursuits. My brother and sister in Christ, listen to me. When I ask the faraway country to give me what can only be gotten from my father, I'm out of control. Just like him. Just like the prodigal. You and I have been told that um, 
of the delights and the sensuality of living in the faraway country. The siren voices have been spilt into our ears as well. And some of us went. And we still bear the scars of having gone. But thank God they're only just scars now. Others of you are still there. And then there are still others who dream daily about living in the faraway country. You know, my, um, my love of travel is uh, fairly well documented in this church. People know how I love to get on a plane with my wife and head someplace. Unfortunately, my wife's hatred of travel is also well-documented in this church. And um, every time I, uh, I travel abroad and return to the good old red, white, and blue, when, when you enter, and, and so many of you have had this experience, when you enter and come back into this country, it's something very much akin to a spiritual experience. Well, on one trip, we, uh, we flew back into Atlanta, and um, you know, when you fly in from abroad, you have to come in this special, I think they debug you or something, spray you. But anyway, um, you, you walk in a different area, and um, as we were walking in this time, I, I noticed a, a sign that was, that was put, uh, put up, um, and I'm sure it was put up there by the Chamber of Commerce, and, and the sign read, Welcome to Atlanta. Enjoy your visit. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't know who I am. I am a U.S. citizen. I belong here. I'm not visiting. I'm staying. And until I can talk my wife into it again, I'm not leaving. I'm a citizen of this place. You don't need to tip your hat to me, tip your hat to them. This is where I belong. I thought, that's not true. This is not where I belong. And you know what? The Chamber of Commerce of the city of Atlanta, I'm sure they didn't intend this, but they remind everyone who walks down that corridor that this life is the one in which we find ourselves only visitors. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I have another home. Do you? In the midst of facing some of the stuff that you and I all have to face, the only hope we have is that we know that there's another home. In the end, very little else matters. The only philosopher, the only theologian, the only preacher that is to be trusted, ladies and gentlemen, is the one who can tell you where home is. I saved this quote until last. It would have, it would have fit several other places, but I saved it until now. It's a, 
It's a famous quote. It's out of Augustine's Confessions, a classic work. It's basically Augustine's testimony. Read it. It's wonderful. But in it he says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till we find our rest in thee. There are a lot of restless hearts in this room. And I think I know why. I hate to do this to you. And I promise I won't do much of it. But um, I found another song. And uh, please don't get the idea that I sing every week. I don't. But this one came to mind. And as I, as I looked at it, the, the, uh, the author of the hymn is a guy by the name of Will Thompson, and I don't know anything about Will. I do know that he has two hymns in our hymnal. The other one is, uh, Jesus is all the world to me. But this was a hymn that was written in the latter part of the 19th century, and I think you will recognize it. But when I read it, I couldn't help believe, but but believe, that when he wrote it, what was in the back of his mind is the parable of the prodigal son. Listen. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. Listen to this. See on the portals. He's waiting and watching. Watching for you and for me. Come home. Come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. There are a lot of ways to leave the Father's house, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know which one you've taken. But come home. Let me pray. Our Father, uh, we are a people who know that there are certain things that are so unapproved to you, and we know that that separates us from you. It's that other stuff that trips us up. It's that stuff that is so subtle, those siren voices that have gone so deep into us. Those things that, that we thought would really make us happy and now we've discovered that they won't. We, we wanted to be so badly, so badly we wanted to be somebody. We, we wanted to, we wanted people to know who we were. We wanted them to, to esteem us and so we we bartered away that which was everlasting and precious and grabbed a hold of something 
that has done nothing but bite us. We went to live a life that was out of control. And we found ourselves controlled by a false god. And I pray, O oh God, that the great grace that is portrayed in this simple parable will be a, a poignant invitation to all of us to come home. We beg you, O oh God, to plant in our hearts a hatred of that which we held on to and now have discovered is a lie and give us a love of the place where we are loved and accepted over at the Father's house. Father, if you have led people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, if they have um, wondered about what Christianity is, might they see Jesus Christ in all of his beauty? The one who does indeed receive sinners, he welcomes them, he eats with them, he dies for them. Might they see him in all of his saving beauty? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I think you know how we close. It's with an invitation to you. If you've completed the new members class and feel like this is the place that the head of the church would have you, exercise your gifts. We, we would like to ask you to come up here and uh, let us at least greet you briefly. But if it's questions that you have about what it means to be related to Jesus Christ, that is, questions about heaven, hell, sin,